God of grace, please be gracious to us now and speak to you as we open your word. Amen. Who is your enemy? Or who are your enemies? Now, as you think about that question, I reckon most of us in this room will think, I don't have any enemies. It's not it's just not really the way that we talk these days, is it? We don't really talk about having enemies. But I, I suspect if you go back a few generations to those who lived through the, the First and Second World Wars, it would be a concept that, were, that people were much more familiar with and comfortable with. For them, they saw that our country was under threat from another nation with very different values to us, who quite literally wanted to see us taken over, robbed of our national identity, robbed of our freedom, and even killed. They were enemies. But these days, enemy isn't really a word that we would throw around anymore. For the Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, enemies was a word that they were very comfortable with. Time and time again, they were at war. They were maybe taken captive um, by other nations. They were carried into exile. They knew what it meant to have enemies. Now, we've been looking at the, the book of Exodus in our Sunday gatherings for a while now. Um, we've seen that God's people are in Egypt. But, but when they first arrived in Egypt, they wouldn't have described the Egyptians as enemies. The, the Egyptians were more like a saviour to them. You see, back then, it was a time of famine. God's, uh, one of God's people, Joseph, the, the man of technical or dream court fame, he um, had got to Egypt and he'd ended up in a position of power. And through a series of events, God's people had come to Egypt and been saved from, from famine and almost certain death. They received food and a home and they settled in Egypt. They flourished there, so much so that after a couple of hundreds of years, they were pretty numerous, and the Egyptians changed their tune towards the Israelites. The Israelites had become a threat to the Egyptians, and so their position on their guests changed. The Egyptians oppressed the Israelites. They, they forced them into slavery, and rather than being their saviors, they became their enemies, their oppressors. And so the Israelites cried out to God. Help us, they said, we're desperate. And as we've seen over the past couple of months, as we've worked our way through Exodus, God did help the Israelites. He raised up one of them, Moses, to be their spokesperson. Moses confronted Pharaoh. He called for Pharaoh to let the people go. But Pharaoh and the Egyptians were a stubborn enemy. They refused to let the people go. And so God flexed, flexed his muscles. He sent a series of, of plagues, demonstrations of his power and warnings to, to show the Egyptians just what he is capable of if they don't let the Israelites go. And eventually, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were defeated. That final plague, the death of the firstborn, that was enough. They were defeated. Pharaoh said, up, go, you may worship the Lord as you requested. And they did. They left the land of their captivity and slavery. They were free. Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the enemies of God's people, were defeated. And that's where we're at in the story. God has rescued them. 
And remember that his goal in all of this, the goal of rescuing them, wasn't simply to solve their presenting problem. It wasn't just about ending their suffering, although it was about that. His goal was also relationship. He wanted to rescue them to be with him, to worship him, to know him. And just as an aside, the same is true for us if you're a Christian today. Becoming a Christian isn't simply about dealing with the problem of sin and its consequences. It is that. We are rescued from slavery to sin. But we're rescued for relationship with God. And we see this dynamic straight away from the Israelites when they're rescued. Did you spot it? You see, God doesn't just kind of set them free and then say, off you go then. Go and do your thing. He leads them. The Israelites knew where they were heading. Their ancestor, Abraham, had been promised that one day his descendants would settle in a land called Canaan, the promised land. That's where they were heading. But to get there from Egypt, they needed to go through Philistine. And the Philistines aren't just going to go and let them go through their land unchecked. To go through their land would mean war. The Israelites are armed, ready to fight if they need to. But God knows their hearts. And he knows that 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 would just be too much for them. And so he takes them on the scenic route, round the land, avoiding Philistine, avoiding trouble. He knows them, and so he protects them from that. And he does the same for us. He knows what we can bear in our lives and he won't let us face anything that'll be too much for us he will hold me fast as we often sing so god is leading them and he's doing it in a very visible way by day ahead of them is a a pillar of cloud and by night ahead of them is a pillar of fire that provides light so that they can keep traveling through the night god is ahead of them he's showing them the way and eventually god leads them to what must have seemed like a really odd place to the Israelites. They set up camp. On one side of them is the Red Sea. On the other side of them is the desert. Now to anyone, that sounds like not a great place to set up camp, not a great place to be. But it gets a whole lot worse for the Israelites. You see, Pharaoh and his officials get wind of what the Israelites have been up to since they left Egypt. They hear that rather than going straight to the land that they're heading to, they're kind of wandering all over the place. They hear that now they're camped in this really vulnerable place between the sea and the desert. And so they have a change of heart. Just look at verse 5 of chapter 14 with me. It says this, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. The Egyptians saw that their workforce, their slaves, their free labor had gone. And they want it back. And so they set out in pursuit of the Israelites. Pharaoh sends his elite units, the the pinnacles of military technology in the whole world in those days, is loosed against the Israelites. It's a vast army. Imagine the scene for the Israelites. There they are, camped between the desert and the sea. And then some kind of dust clouds start to appear on the horizon. What is this? 
they think. We're on the edge of a desert. Why would anyone be coming here? And then the whispers start to go through the camp. Word comes in. It's the Egyptian army. They've come for us. They're quite literally caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Now, I want us to just um, pause for a moment there in the story. Because I think in this moment with the Israelites where they are, we get a, a really vivid picture of an aspect of the Christian life that we sometimes don't talk about enough in our kinds of churches. Let me kind of spell out what I'm saying, and then we'll dig into it a bit deeper. You see, for Israel, their enemy, the, the Egyptians, their enemy was defeated, but not yet destroyed. Their enemy still had the ability to threaten them and make them fearful and doubt God. And Christians today are in exactly the same situation. The Bible says that we too have an enemy, Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. And the Bible tells us that that enemy has been defeated. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the devil. He made a public spectacle of him. Satan is defeated, but not yet destroyed. And as such, our experience can be just like the Israelites. There are times when Satan looms on the horizon, threatening us. There are times when he can make us fearful and doubt God. The Israelites' predicament gives us a vivid picture of the spiritual reality of the Christian life. Let's just dig into that a little bit deeper. Keep your finger or uh, foot or something in Exodus and turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. It's page 1177 in, in the church Bibles if you've got one of those. Ephesians chapter 6. Just as you turn in there, the New Testament uh, makes it clear to us that uh, there is a spiritual battle going on. That the enemy is the devil and his forces. So just look with me. Ephesians chapter 6 and let me read from verse 10. It says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, if you're a Christian today, you do have an enemy. That's what the Bible tells us. The spiritual forces of evil, as Paul puts it, that's our enemy. But our enemy doesn't wield weapons like the Egyptians did. His weapon, his goal is simple. He wants to thwart the plans of God. For those who don't know Jesus, he seeks to tempt them to, to sin and to distract them away from God and thinking about uh, things of God. To blind the minds of unbelievers, as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But here's what he does if you're a Christian here today. He tempts you. He tempts you to believe that this world is all that there is. That it's all about the material. About the here and now. You shouldn't be bothered about things of God. It's the here and now that matters. And so you get distracted from following Jesus by the things that are going on in your life, by the pursuit of the things that you pursue in life. And so we should ask ourselves the question, where could this be true in my life? 
That's one way he tempts you. But he also tempts you to, to sin, to, to stop trusting that God's way is best, that true joy and life are found in him. Just like he did with Adam and Eve, he tempts you to believe that God doesn't really want what's best for you. And that the road of sin is the road to fulfilment and life. Once again, ask yourself, where are you vulnerable in this? And then here's what he does when you give in. When you give in to those temptations that we just described. What he does is he, he tempts you to believe that when you do sin, when you give in to temptation, then that's it. You've done it this time. He makes you think that surely God must be through with you now. Surely he must be fed up with you, disappointed with you. Surely you can no longer approach him. Surely you should just give up. Give up pursuing God. Give up living for him. He makes you feel cut off from God because of the, the times you've given into temptation. That's the enemy. Those are his tactics. Israel are faced with their enemy. They're caught between them and the sea. It seems like a hopeless situation. And just look how they respond. Flick back now to um, Exodus and keep a finger in Ephesians. <laughs> um, and look with me. Um, Exodus chapter 14, page 71. And um, look with me from verse 10. As Pharaoh approached... The Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. The Israelites crumble. They fear their enemy, and they doubt God. And, and you know, we can do just the same. <laughs> I've just spilled my water, never mind. We can do just the same. When we're faced with the enemy's attacks, we can just as easily give in to fear. When we're tempted to sin and we doubt that we could ever resist it, we think the enemy is too powerful. Or when we do sin and we allow guilt to crush us, to, to turn us from God, to turn us inward on ourselves. When you look at the Israelites' reaction to their powerful enemy, we see the very same reaction in us when we face our enemy. But here's what they're forgetting. The enemy is already defeated and soon will be destroyed. God had said to the people that they would go free. He promised that they get to the promised land. Joseph believed it, didn't he? Did you notice that little bit? Um, the detail about him making them swear to take his bones with them when they, got, when they left the land and when they got to go back to their own land. He believed that God would get them there. But the Israelites weren't so sure. Pharaoh and his army have been defeated. But the Israelites weren't so sure. They didn't think God could come through for them. God had said that they wouldn't destroy his people, but they've forgotten this. And the same can be true for us. And so we must remember the very same thing that the Israelites are forgetting. We must hear this. The spiritual forces of evil have been defeated at the cross. 
we do not need to fear them any longer. And when we think about those particular ways that Satan can tempt us, this makes all the difference in the world. Let me just try and spell that out a little bit for us. First, we thought, didn't we, about how the devil tempts us to give in to sin. Now, prior to knowing Jesus, prior to receiving everything he did for us at the cross, the Bible describes us as slaves to sin. It says we are in bondage to it. It had a power over us that we were unable to overcome. And so we kept on sinning. You'll see the truth of that if you ever tried to, to reform yourself on your own without God. Even when you saw wins in that, what always happened was another addiction or character trait or habit or behavior or thought pattern reared its ugly head. Slaves to sin, that's what the Bible says. But here's what happened at the cross. At the cross, the power of sin was undone. The Bible says that, yes, Christians do sin. We need to hear that because you all will, and I do, and, and we need to be realistic about that. But it also says this. It says that we are no longer slaves to sin. That we have the power to break the, the habits and the patterns of sin in our lives, to see real transformation and growth. We are no longer slaves to sin. And then the devil comes along. He tempts you in that area that you always seem to give in to. And when faced with that temptation, it's easy to think, what's the point in resisting? I might as well just give in. I'm going to give in anyway. That's the enemy's attack. That's his weapon held out against us. And in that moment, what we need to remember is that the enemy has been defeated at the cross. Our slavery to sin is no more. At the cross, Jesus overcame it. He gave us a new heart and he poured his spirit into our heart so that real change is possible. So that we can say no to sin. We don't have to give in to fear and defeat because the enemy is defeated. But at times, as I've already said, we do give in. The Bible leads us to expect that. We, we still sin. And when we do, the enemy gets in there again. And he tempts us in that other way that we thought about. He, he piles on the guilt. As we've already seen, he makes us feel shame. And he tries to convince us that God's fed up of us. That God, it's, it's one step too far. That he is disappointed. He's through with us. He couldn't possibly want to accept me this time. Not again. But when that happens, once again, we need to remember this. The enemy is defeated. Because here's the thing. When we feel guilt and shame, and it makes us think that God is through with us, here's what we need to realize. That is a lie. It's a lie of the enemy that just doesn't stand up. Paul puts it so succinctly in Romans when he says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. At the cross, Jesus paid for that sin. 
He was condemned for it. God turned his face from Jesus because of your sin, and so he'll never turn his face from you because of it. It's dealt with. God knew you would do that sin. But he's wiped it clean. He's dealt with it. You can always approach God if you're trusting Jesus. The enemy has been defeated. We are no longer slaves to sin, and so we don't need to keep giving into it. And when we do, we don't need to think that's the end. Because it's paid for. Those are the enemy's chief weapons against us, and they're powerless against us. The cross has dealt with them. So we don't need to fear. Two songs that we sing uh, here in Grace Church put this so well. Listen to these words from In Christ Alone. It says this. And as he, that's Jesus, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And it goes on. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's the truth that we must cling to when the enemy attacks. And let me just read some other words from another song. From before the throne of God above. Here's what it says. It says... When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, that's Jesus, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The enemy seems powerful and real. He tempts us to, to, give us to give in to sin and then to pull away from God with the guilt that, that we feel afterwards. That seems more real to us than anything else. But it's not because he's defeated. Sin and guilt have no hold on us. The Israelites gave in to fear when their enemy approached. Their elite weapons and overwhelming numbers just seemed too much. But the Israelites forgot that their enemy had already been defeated. And we do just the same. The devil's weapons of temptation to sin and guilt seem so powerful in that moment, don't they? But we re need to remember that he too is defeated. We need to remember that though his weapon seems so powerful, he's actually been disarmed. In the sight of God, our sin and guilt can do no harm to us because Jesus has paid for them. And so what do we need to do instead? Well, what we need to do is just what Moses tells the Israelites to do here. Just look with me from verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Israelites, Israelites have an enemy. But this enemy will not defeat them. God will fight the battle. 
They don't need to fight it. They don't need to defeat the enemy. God will fight the battle. They just need to be still. And the same is true for Lord's. Look forward again with me to um, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll carry on with those verses there. You see, Paul, as we read, has just described that the enemy that Christians face, the spiritual forces of evil. And now he's going to say what we need to do in the face of such an enemy. And listen to the echoes of Exodus in this. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand Stand firm then. Do you think he's trying to make a point there? Defeating the enemy isn't our job. Our job is to stand. To be still, as it said in Exodus. And then he goes on to describe this armour that they're to put on. But, but what's interesting is that armour is nearly all about looking to what God, who God is and what he has done for us. It's faith and truth and the righteousness that he has given us and so on. God would fight the Israelites' enemy for them. They just needed to trust him and be still. And God will fight our enemy too. We're just called to stand and to look to him, to trust him. There's no call to, to man up, to kind of pump some spiritual iron so that you can go hand to hand in combat with the devil. No, God does the fighting. It's his battle. We just stand and we look to him in faith. We're protected by the armour of all that he has done and all that he is doing. The enemy is defeated. That's the big take-home message today. And then just finally, I want us to see that the enemy, yes, he's defeated, and one day he'll be destroyed. Go back now with me to Exodus chapter 14. You don't need to keep fingering anymore. (laughs) You see, the Israelites are told, as we've just seen, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And then God goes on from that verse to, to lay out his battle plan. Verses 15 to 18, he does that. The enemy that's defeated is about to be destroyed. And sure enough, it is. Now let's make no bones about it. As Michael said earlier, what happens here is a miracle. Some people um, find it hard to believe in miracles. And because of that, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to kind of explain away the miracles in the Bible, explain away the parting of the Red Sea. But here's the thing. If God really created everything, then it's surely no stretch to imagine that he's able to control the world that he made in a miraculous way. That's not beyond the realms of possibility. It's logical, isn't it? The story goes of uh, a young, enthusiastic Christian sitting on the train reading their Bible. And partway through the journey, uh, a kind of a, a theological liberal professor sits opposite her on the train And he sees that she's reading the Bible, so he says, oh, what are you reading? And she excitedly tells him, I'm reading Exodus, it's totally amazing. I've just read about the miracle where God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go through on dry land. Oh, says the theologian. Well, actually, 
what we now understand it wasn't really the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea, which isn't really deep. It's kind of four or five inches deep. And, and God brought them to that because then they could walk through it. And, and, and so the girl kind of slumped in her train seat, deflated at what he'd said to her, kind of disappointed that it wasn't the miracle that she thought. But she kept reading. And a few minutes later, um, the, the theologian noticed that she started to get excited again. And so he says to her, oh, what is it now? And she says, it's amazing. God has just managed to drown the entire Egyptian army in four to five inches of water. <laughs> you see, what happens in these verses is clear. God intervenes to destroy the enemies of God's people. It's a miracle. He, he saw their plight. He saw the Egyptians. He knew that they would either be enslaved again or killed. And he stepped in. The enemy that had been defeated is now destroyed. And look at how the chapter ends. The fear of the Israelites has changed. Look at verse 31 with me. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. You see, the Israelites have gone from fearing their enemy to fearing their God. But this isn't a, a cowering, nervous fear of what trouble might befall them from God. This is a trusting fear. They have seen that the God who is for them, the God who leads them, the God who wants to know them is a God of immense power. They trust him and they tremble because they know who they have on their side. Right now, in a sense, we are still on the other side of the Red Sea. Our enemy still looms on the horizon. His weapons glint in the sun. But he is defeated. We can be sure of that because of the cross. And so we can choose, instead of fearing the enemy and giving in to guilt and shame, we can choose to trust and to fear God. God has defeated our enemy. And just like the Egyptians, one day our enemy will be destroyed. A day is coming when Jesus will return. In Revelation, we read that on that day, the devil and his spiritual forces of evil will be cast into hell, never to be released. No longer will we have our vision of God clouded by unnecessary guilt for sin that has already, already been dealt with. We will cross the sea. And be in the promised land, the new creation. Sin and guilt will be no more. Our enemy will be gone, destroyed. Until then, we stand. Let me read those words again from In Christ Alone. And I'll pray and then we'll sing them together. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Let me pray.